Welcome to the Property Management Law Solutions Podcast. Your host, Attorney Tim Baldwin, will guide you in all things property management, law, markets, politics, and commentary. Your property is his priority. Here's your host, Attorney Tim Baldwin. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Property Management Law Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Attorney Tim Baldwin from Pensacola, Florida, and today we're going to discuss uh, some news out there that's happening involving landlord-tenant law, of course, with the COVID-19 situation still happening. There's uh, a lot of media coverage about different aspects of the landlord-tenant relationships and law, especially as it relates to paying rent, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, in Florida, the, the notice to pay, if the tenant is behind rent, they owe money, then there's a notice specifically that you have to provide the tenant if you're going to enforce the lease. And we're going to talk about things like that because, quite frankly, there's a lot of people that still don't know how to really do it the right way, even if they've been in property management law business for a number of years. And of course, there's people who are new to the business and, and need direction and, and help just to make sure they're doing it properly. But the three-day notice to pay or vacate has been litigated quite a bit in Florida. You can find lots of cases about this notice. And you would think, well, man, it's so simple. All you got to do is just uh, follow the statute, 83.56 subsection 3, which is, which is the provision that requires landlords to give this notice. And it seems so simple. But if you start looking at the cases involving three-day notices, you start to uh, realize that, well, it may not be quite as simple or easy to, to do uh, because of the variety of issues that have been raised by tenants over the past several decades. And the courts have clarified a lot of things. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that a bit. I'm just going to give you some really good practice tips about the three-day notice uh, based on my experience and based on a lot of these cases that have come out over the years. But first, let's dive into some of the stories that are happening out there in the landlord-tenant world. Many of you may know that there have been these moratoriums on evictions that a lot of the states uh, passed by executive order from the governors of those states. And in and within those states, you've had other local restrictions passed by city council or county commissioners. They have limited, if not prevented, landlords from, from filing evictions against tenants. And that's still going on. I mean, we're talking about since essentially from, you know, started March of 2020. And here we are in um, middle of 2021. So for over a year, landlords have been without their normal remedy to remove a tenant who isn't paying rent. And it's really caused, of course, a lot of problems for a lot of landlords. Some landlords use rent money or rent income for their primary income, maybe their sole income. It was their investment uh, that they made for years to be able to plan for retirement. And so they may own numerous properties and from those properties, the rental income comes in so that they can they can live. For a lot of those folks, they are in serious trouble if they have not gotten any relief from their mortgage company or obviously they have bills to pay uh, if they haven't been able to take care of those bills or they have other debts maybe that, that they're servicing. Maybe they have medical 
expenses that they have to pay for, so on and so forth. And so whenever the tenants uh, don't have to pay rent and there's nothing the landlord can do to remove them, they're just living there rent-free, not to mention potentially the maintenance issues that arise that they got to pay for. Um, you know, if there's a new roof, new windows, flooring, walls, on and on that have to that they have to be maintained and there's no money coming in the well, then obviously the landlords in and bit with a big problem to do that. So it's it's a really, really, really big issue. Well we have this story coming out on May eleventh, twenty twenty one. This is from the business journal.com. It's entitled City Funding I'm sorry, city funded attorneys for evicted renters, question mark. Council members float proposal. So in Fresno City, California, the local city council is proposing that for tenants who are facing eviction, actually, it's actually in quotations, if they're facing an unlawful eviction, then the city may provide private law firms who are paid by city funds to represent those tenants and those eviction actions. Of course, if there's going to be funding made available for attorneys to represent tenants on, quote, unlawful evictions, that means that there has to be an attorney who reviews every single eviction uh, that's filed, who makes a determination on his or her own that the tenant is unlawful. I would think that the whoever the attorney is that's reviewing the matter would not be the same law firm that is going to be paid to represent the tenants because it might be a little bit of a self-generating kind of an income if what you're doing is uh, saying yes to this case we and now we get paid to represent the tenant. Whether or not, you know, there's a there's a defense there for the tenant, maybe there, maybe there is, maybe there's not. But there's certainly an incentive to approve the eviction defense if there's going to be a good source of revenue that's going to be coming in. Uh, it certainly provide. It certainly changes really the entire landlord-tenant legal landscape. Because well, I can't speak for California, but I can tell you that in Florida, you know, by and large, most evictions, you know, don't, there's not an attorney who's representing the tenant and there's not litigation that goes on on these cases by and large now tenants do file answers and they'll file whatever defense they think they have it may go to a preliminary hearing for the court to uh, determine what the rent is uh, if there's any back rent owed because in florida if the tenant has back rent owed then they can't raise defenses other than the defense that they have paid rent and so they shouldn't be evicted if they pay the rent but in those cases you know they got to provide proof to the court that they have paid the rent and at those preliminary hearings if the court sees that the tenant paid the rent then you know the, the landlord is going to lose but most cases we're talking like <laughs> uh, actually I'm, I can't even say I've ever seen a case where the tenant actually paid all the rent and I've handled hundreds and hundreds of evictions so it's a re really rare thing to see a tenant saying, well, I've paid the rent, therefore I shouldn't be evicted. The vast majority of times, the tenant is not only behind in rent, but there may be some other underlying issues. It may be an eviction for failing to cure a default. You know, commonly you see un uh, unlawful occupants, or not so much unlawful, but they're not allowed by the lease. So you have, uh, you have unauthorized occupants. 
you have unauthorized pets, you have the tenant not keeping the property well maintained. Those are very common types of issues. So, so a lot of times the landlord will file evictions really just based on the three-day notice to pay or vacate because it's the simplest action to file. It seems to be the quickest, easiest uh, to get them in court and and to go through that process and get the order of eviction and um, and the tenant moves out. But many, many, many times there's other issues going on. But in California, in Fresno City, now we have a situation where if there's going to be attorneys who step in for every, presumably every case that has a defense and they're the ones determining that, it certainly does change how landlords are going to do business. I'm not quite sure how you you operate a property management business that relies on rental income to to pay uh, not not just the landlord but the the employees who work for the property management company. You know they're 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 representing the owners in the relationship with the tenant so that you know the owners don't have to be involved. Property management companies by and large have become much more professional uh, than they they were years ago. It's pretty sophisticated nowadays with the type of software that property managers use, the technology, the professional vendors that service those um, companies um, for maintenance and pictures and advertising and all sorts of things that involve uh, maintaining and renting a property. And so if you have um, a situation where now it's almost like the criminal defense system where you know you have a right to an attorney and of course with the criminal defense system that is a constitutional right we see that you know thankfully is it's a protection that we have in America to make sure that the government isn't um, you know taking advantage of its positions of power and resources and and those types of things that really can you know be a, a big problem for someone who's arrested so it's a constitutional right to, to be able to be represented by an attorney if you if you can't afford one so we're, we're we're stepping into that same sort of realm it looks like in Fresno City to where they have some money uh, allotted apparently that they're going to be taking from the federal government uh, or you know receiving accepting from the federal government and using that money to essentially to determine you know, there's going to be some kind of a task force, and they're going to determine if there's an unlawful eviction filed, and if there has been, presumably they're going to file an answer, and you know, it's going to go through the process. However, that works in California. I would also think that if, if in fact there is a an unlawful eviction, and I would, you know. You know, I'm not sure if they look at the full gamut of defenses too, because in landlord tenant law, there could be. There could be a variety of defenses the tenant may have. It may have nothing to do with the fact that they can't pay rent and there's this eviction moratorium. It may be there may be other th- other things involved, you know. So do they consult with the clients about the history of the relationship? Please tell us everything that's happened, you know, for the past two years about this uh, property. Well, now you're going to have, well, there's mold and it's been a piece of junk house to live in. And my landlord's mean to me. You know, he comes to my house, knocks on my door without giving me notice. You know, he harasses me, you know, on and on and on. You know, it it just, the types of uh, allegations you can get really can, can just be continually um, ongoing throughout the relationship. So I can just imagine that if the attorneys are going to actually do a full-fledged kind of a defense for a tenant, that they're going to be spending a whole lot of time with people, talking with them, seeing what defenses may exist. Or it could just be kind of a assembly line kind of an operation where 
you know, they, they get the file from the clerk's office. Here's the complaint for eviction. Here's the, you know, it's, it's uh, based on non-payment of rent. And the tenant has signed this document saying that they qualify for uh, the moratorium protection. So we're going to look just, just at those. And, you know, that may be a, a simple review, but if that, if that's how they're going to approach those, then um, it's not like they're going to be providing really the full kind of defenses you would see potentially with a tenant who has, um, you know, a variety of things going on, but rather it's sort of just a glossary review of the matter. And they're going to just see if the, the tenant may qualify for the moratorium protection. So who knows? But if you're there in Fresno City, apparently you may be getting an attorney to represent you in these eviction actions. And that that's just going to be really fascinating to, to watch. I don't know of many places... Um, that have tried to do this. Um, I haven't seen any other articles particularly. Well, there, there actually may be some. I, I actually could come across some, I'm sure, that are going to try to do the same thing. I have to find those and, and look at those. But apparently that is going to be uh, the case for some local areas. If you're a landlord there, you're you're probably going to want to speak to an attorney of your own to see what the effect is going to be for you, uh, not just when you have an eviction to file, but just in your everyday practice, because it definitely could affect how you do business. And um, and really probably trying to figure out what are you going to do with, with your properties? You know, if you have to house people for however long and not get paid rent, you know, I don't know how that works because there's a lot of places that are, you know, they have lifted those moratoriums. I just saw an article uh, that came out. Um, let's see here. This was in Chicago. This is an article out of Chicago saying that the Illinois governor is going to end the eviction moratorium in August. And then that there's a $1.5 billion rental relief program, apparently, to try to, to get landlords money for rent. I don't know how that's going to work either. I know that there are programs out there that tenants can apply for. And if they are approved, they can receive money to be able to pay rent. I've seen that myself. Some of my clients have brought it to my attention and that's an interesting thing because, and I don't know if these are, these might be private organizations, some of them. Some of them are actually, uh, mostly, I think, run by the state or uh, the county that these people live in. First of all, the, the tenant has to apply for the money. If they are approved, the program, I believe, um, will pay the tenant. Although I think there's ways that they may be able to pay the landlord directly. So now you've got to get the landlord involved in this process, and the landlord's got to be willing to go through the process. Well, when you're dealing with a government agency, of course, there's uh, you know there's paperwork, there's application and uh, information to be provided. So you've now you've got to probably assign someone on the administrative task of doing that if you're going to try and take advantage of that money. And then the question becomes, well, why would I do that? Really? You know, some some people may think, well, this is great and wonderful that there's all this money available uh, to be able to pay landlords to accept rent or to pay for back rent. But the reality of it is, is that many landlords are really just ready to cut their losses because they can't afford to have the situation arise again where the tenant is not going to be paying for an extended period of time. So I, I you know, I promise you that there are many, many landlords out there who are just going to say, you know, I don't want this money. I just want the house back so I can get the house back in rent ready condition 
and be able to rent the house for the market value of the house because the market value has changed, you know, mostly has gone up since last year. Uh, it certainly has in Florida. So if there, you know, if there's a tenant stuck there without paying rent, not only can they not receive rent money because there's someone there who doesn't pay and they can't be evicted for not paying, but they can't, you know, bring their house up to current market value. And so they're losing money on that end. And they they really want to find someone who can pay rent. They want they want to find someone who's who's working that has enough income to be able to support paying the rent and who's a good bet. You know, essentially it's it's a gamble every time you put someone in these houses of whether or not they can pay the rent. So they want a good bet. And so rather than deal with, oh, you've paid back rent. Well, that's wonderful, but what's going to happen next month? So rather than deal with all that, they're, they're not going to even accept the money. They're just going to move on. You're already seeing that now. I mean, I've, I have filed evictions where the tenants say, well, I have funding from some source. And my clients are like, we don't want that money. That's that's not what we're doing here. We want, it, we want the house back. We want to get the house back into good condition and we want to get the house on the market for the right market value and find tenants who are a much better bet, a less of a risk. So just because there's money available, and this is my point, I think, is that just because there's money available out there doesn't mean that it's going to really you know, fix the situation for some of these folks. It, it may help some, uh, but not all. What would probably be a better use of that money is instead of paying back rent for some of these folks, it's more like here's some money that you can pay rent to come. You know, I'm surprised there hasn't been much talk about that is that, you know, here's, you know, if we're going to pay pay you all this money for the back rent, oh, but yet you're still going to be evicted or you're still going to be, you know, there's no renewal of the lease. You're going to be, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't leave, uh, if it's a month to month tenancy or if the term of your lease is about to expire, you, you can still be, you can still be evicted. There's all this money out there and it's not really being used in the way that it should be used to help folks stay in a home. So if that money could be used to pay rent in advance, that seems to be a much better use of that money because the tenant sort of has a, a guarantee that they can't be evicted for failing to pay rent because the money's already been paid. And then of course the landlord may prefer that as well because they already have the money. They don't have to worry about that. Now, if the tenant breaches the lease in some other way, that's another issue, but you would hope that that wouldn't be the case, although it can be. So we see that in Illinois. So there is, uh, there, you know, in Illinois is not, uh, you know, like Florida, Governor DeSantis has been one of the leading, if not the leading governor um, in, in many of the conservative fronts. Illinois is not, I don't think, uh, on that scale, but the governor there says, hey, you know what, uh, it's, it's really, it's time to end the uh, mandatory subsidy uh, that we're imposing on landlords. And that's really what it is, that, that the landlords are being forced to subsidize rent for a lot of people. On another issue, we see that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has issued a regulation relative to the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act under federal law. And that bureaucracy is sort of in charge of that, of doing that, or sort of regulating the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act rules and regulations. And they issued a rule uh, just recently where landlords and the attorneys who represent landlords have to include a certain notice language within their 
notices to pay or vacate or a notice that basically is seeks to um, enforce the lease or evict the tenant. And this notice language uh, that they suggest in their rule is essentially uh, along the lines of, hey, you may have uh, protection from the eviction to learn more about your your rights in this regard call the following number and it just it just basically can give the tenants um, information that they may not have known about their protections about protections under these eviction moratorium and there is a lawsuit that was filed in may 2021 by a property management cut company and this is out of tennessee saying that the rule um, that rule should not be required in the notices that landlords and attorneys should not have to give this notice language to the tenants. And the court there uh, disagreed and they basically said, nope, you know, you got to do it. You got to put that that language in there. So at least until the order expires, which is June 30th. So, uh, well, June 30th is when the Center for Disease Control has extended the moratorium on their end till June 30th, 2021. So until that ends, this this appeals court, uh, the federal appeals court out of Tennessee said that, no, you've got to have this, this notice language. Now, interestingly enough, that we've had a significant ruling out of the federal court in D.C. that ruled the moratorium itself that was issued by the CDC is unconstitutional, that they didn't have the authority to do that. That was a huge decision. You know, that that was monumental uh, to, to basically overhaul the moratorium world we live in and to say, no, you can't do that. And all of a sudden now we're back to normal. The government appealed that decision. And so it is an appeal and under review right now. And that the court's order that's that ruled it was unconstitutional has been stayed. So it's it's not currently being enforced. It's awaiting the decision by the appellate court to decide whether that is a correct ruling or not. And so we see um, that's a another tremendously important decision. And we've seen other courts around the country that have ruled the same way, that it is unconstitutional. The local judge in Escambia County, Judge Kinsey, has ruled that the CDC eviction moratorium was also unconstitutional. It constituted a taking from the landlord. And since the government's not compensating landlords for this it constituted a taking and it was that violated the takings clause and so she ruled it unconstitutional the tenant in that case um, likewise filed an appeal and it's i believe it's still under review i have not seen any legal updates on that one yet so that was still under review but there have been other cases in the united states have done the same thing and so you know the reason this is so important right now is because we have never seen in this country, such a widespread interference with landlord-tenant law from the federal government before in our history. So if you have um, a ruling from a federal court, and it may go to the U.S. Supreme Court, we don't know yet, it certainly is an issue large enough and affects the entire nation. So its, its impact is big enough and the constitutional significance is big enough that it could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. They could make a ruling on this issue. And if they rule that the bureaucracies of the federal government, the executive branch, uh, maybe even Congress, if we, if we go to those that extent of the authority, does not have uh, the power under the Constitution to stop evictions as it did without uh, compensating landlords or whatever the issue may be. I mean, there could be a variety of issues. 
it certainly changes how the government can respond uh, with any other future um, situation that the government just feels like it needs to take over a, an, an entire industry, uh, such as landlord-tenant law. It's going to be fascinating to watch, and landlords should be paying attention to it because uh, it does and will affect you know how they could do business in the future. It may change, you know, it may present different um, legislation, you know, from Congress or from variety of the states and their legislatures to deal with these types of um, problems in the future. There's an article that came out on May 17th, 2021 out of the Danville Register. This is uh, GoDanRiver.com, May 17th, 2021. The title of this article is, He Just Wanted Me Out of There, Churchill Landlord Evicts Tenant Over Pet Pigeons. So this is, you know, again, uh, we talked last episode about how the media can try to make landlords look malicious in their approach to managing their own property. And this is that type of article. It essentially, you know, shows that the landlord had this tenant who had been in this house for a while and um, he was behind on rent. He, he could never get caught up. And apparently, you know, maybe the landlord was, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what his situation was, but this tenant was still there. He was behind rent. The lease required stated that the tenant or that the tenant was not to have any pets or animals on the property. The landlord found out that he did and the landlord tried to get the tenant to um, remove them, apparently, and the tenant never did. So finally, the landlord, you know, took the steps necessary to file the eviction. Eventually, the landlord did get the tenant out. So the article sort of has an undertone, at least I, I sort of sense the undertone of the article, that the landlord really, you know, is just taking advantage of something that is silly and instead of... Um, you know, just allowing this person to stay there. One of the statements made in the article goes to exactly what I said earlier about the landlord's decision not to accept money from whatever the source may be, whether it's government funding or, or charity funding. Um, they'd rather get the tenant out who is shown to be a less than desirable tenant to be in the house and find someone who is desirable. So low risk. And this person, or the, the statement here in the article says, uh, evicting the tenant for his birds meant foregoing thousands, meaning thousands of dollars, in rental assistance that the landlord could have received through the state's rent relief program. So just it highlights again that even with the available monies, when you have a legal in political landscape where there are these moratoriums and you just simply can't get the tenant out if they're not paying rent. And in addition to that, if they're not keeping up the maintenance of the property or there's other problems, maybe it's such as they're disturbing the neighbors or, you know, maybe they're, um, they have sort of incessant kind of requests that the landlord can never fulfill. And, so it's becoming an extreme burden on the landlord to even have this person in the home. You know, why would they accept the money for that person just simply to stay there for an additional period of time when they've caused, um, you know, there's a history 
of not paying. There's a history of not being able to pay. Who knows? But the risk is high. And so rather than accepting the rent, they're just going to remove the tenant and find a new tenant that is a lot less of a risk. So this landlord apparently in Churchill, Virginia, um, sees it the same way. All right, now let's get into three-day notice to pay or vacate. Again, I've seen so many of these over the years. And whether you've been in business for a long time uh, managing properties or you've owned your own rental properties for a long time, I can just tell you I've seen mistakes made over and over and over again on the three-day notice. Let me just hit some highlights here, okay? Um, You just need to be familiar with. First of all, on the notice, make sure the address that you are delivering this to and that the address stated on the form is the same address that the tenant is renting. The address, the unit number, the city, the state, the county, all that needs to be on the address. And that brings the point of make sure your lease accurately states the address as well. Next is make sure that you calculate the dates correctly on the pay or vacate date. In Florida, you cannot include the weekends, the legal holidays, and the day that you've delivered the notice. That's one of the bigger mistakes that you see is that they'll include in that three days the day that you deliver the notice. Don't do that. Start day number one on the day after you've delivered the notice, as long as it's not a weekend in the legal holiday. If it's a weekend or a legal holiday, do not include those days. Now, the way that you can deliver it, the notice is by hand delivery to the tenant, by posting it on a conspicuous place on the property. I mean, obviously the front door is the most conspicuous place and by certified mail. But if you certify mail the notice, Under the Florida mailbox rule, you have to add an additional five days to the cure period. If it's a three-day notice to pay or vacate, it becomes an eight-day notice to pay or vacate. If it's a seven-day notice to cure, it becomes a 12-day notice to cure. And another missed issue a lot of times is that if the lease requires the tenant to mail the payment back to the landlord, then requiring the tenant to mail it actually imposes another five days on the cure period. Three-day notice to pay, it becomes eight days, and the tenant has to mail it back. Then you add another five days, it becomes a 13-day. The other big issue is the amount of money that you've put on the notice for the tenant to pay. The amount can only be for rent owed. If there are monies that the tenant owes that are not deemed rent or additional rent in the lease, you cannot put it in the notice to pay. Florida courts are very clear about this and it's been heavily litigated. So if you have all these other fees or maybe cure costs that the tenant owes, you cannot put those in the notice to pay unless those are deemed additional rent. And even if it is deemed additional rent, many times what I advise my clients is don't put it in there because quite frankly, it doesn't necessarily help your case. Sometimes it just creates issues in your case. And rather than create the issues, you're going to keep it very simple so that if it does become an issue, it's easily 
identifiable, it's easily answered. There's not um, a room room for defense on those issues. At a minimum, though, make sure the lease defines those as additional rent. Another aspect to calculating or stating what is owed is to actually delineate what the amount is for. So there's a payer vacate total that you have on the form that the statute requires. There's a total amount that they owe. But if there's multiple items of rent owed or additional rent owed for the purposes of clarity and not confusing the tenant and the court, it's better to delineate what each rent item is for. So for example, if they owe, you know, partial rent for the month of May, if, let's just say their rent is $1,000. If they owe $500 for the month of May, because they paid $500, but then they didn't pay at all for the month of June, then delineate that on the form. So you have May rent 500, June rent 1,000, total owed 1,500. There are some courts that have actually sort of, um, you know, uh, pretty much stated that if it's more than just your um, one month rent and it's easily identifiable, that there needs to be a delineation so that you don't confuse the tenant. Because if it's too confusing, the tenant may have a defense as to that because it renders the notice legally defective. Confusion. So avoid the confusion. Just delineate the amounts and what those are for, and it will avoid that. There are other potential problems too. Um, I mean, especially right now. I mean, once the eviction moratoriums are released, I can just foresee there being big issues about you know money, rent monies that are owed for months and months prior. Because ordinarily you would have, the tenant may have a waiver defense if the landlord essentially never enforces the lease and then all of a sudden, you know, a year later comes back and says, okay, now you owe all this money. You didn't pay it, you know, for the past 12 months and now here's my pay or or vacate notice. So the tenant may have a waiver defense. um, And so with the moratoriums that have hap- been happening, that may be an interesting issue to watch and see what happens. But in any event, you know, as a landlord, you need to avoid these kinds of defenses to your, to the best of your ability. And, and waiting and waiting and waiting around to enforce the lease may cause a problem, especially if your if your lease agreement doesn't address the issues of waiver and the issues of enforcement of the lease. But even if your lease does address it, it still can be, uh, the court can still apply those those equitable defenses and those affirmative defenses and rule that if you've sat back and done nothing and it, that prejudices the tenant in some way, then the court could uh, stop you from, from asserting those, those actions against the tenant. So don't sit around and wait to enforce the lease. That's why you got to take the steps of delivering the right notices and uh, enforcing those notices. And that's something that's very, very, it, it's actually so interesting in the sense that some of the media and, and people out there, some politicians and such, are trying to place it on the landlords to help the tenants. That, And essentially what that means is sit back and do nothing and, and just let them live there rent-free or whatever because of uh, the moratoriums that are in place. But the fact of the matter is the courts have said if, if the landlord sits on his rights and doesn't do anything, um, or if he enters notice, or if he sends notices out but never enforces those notices, that this that the landlord has basically created an implied term in the lease um, that provides uh, a defense for the tenant not to be evicted on whatever that reoccurring breach may have been. So it's it's just that's why you know having an, a legal expert know what the issues are, what the law says, what the courts have said, 
um, what dangers and pitfalls you may be facing if you don't do it the right way is so important in this business. All right, moving on. The other tip here is make sure the tenant's names are all on the notice. Whoever's names as the tenant are on the lease, include those in the notice. If you don't include a tenant on the lease, then it's defective and that's a defense for the tenant. So name every tenant on the lease. If there is a tenant that's been released from the lease by agreement of the parties and that person is no longer there, there needs to be something in writing saying that they've been released from the lease and thus they would not be a party to any eviction action. But that needs to be in writing, signed by the parties so that whenever you send out new notices, that person's name doesn't need to be on it. The next thing you want to make sure is that your payer vacate date is correct, like we talked about just a minute ago. Don't include the day of service, don't include weekends, don't include legal holidays. You'll you'll also want to make sure that you date your certificate of service portion of your form correctly. So whatever date that you've delivered the notice, that date needs to be on the certificate of service and it needs to indicate the method of service. So did you hand deliver it? Did you post it? Did you certify mail it? That needs to be correct. Also make sure that the person with authority signs the form as the landlord, or if it's a manager, the broker or the agent that's working with the broker, they need to sign that they're the ones delivering this and that they're the ones with the authority to demand it from the tenant. Of course, there are other issues that arise Just knowing that there are issues like this out there, first of all, it should motivate you to form a relationship with an attorney who specializes in landlord-tenant. Because again, it's mostly notice-driven, it's contract law, and it's knowing what court, how the courts look at the issues. You don't want to have to waste your time wondering, guessing, and then really having to deal with the problem of not doing it correctly um, on the back end because you may lose valuable time. You're going to lose money. You're going to lose time, value of money. You're going to have to deal with the headaches and hassles of really a tenant who may know what they're doing more than you do or a, an attorney who steps in, like in the city of Fresno. If you get an attorney appointed, I would imagine that the issues are going to be much more heavily litigated there. You're going to see um, a stall in the process. You're going to see landlords who are just um, stuck essentially with the litigation and not with me being able to get the property back. But even in normal circumstances where you don't have that kind of help and it's just, you know, you're just dealing with the tenants, um, you need to know what you're doing to be efficient and proficient in your business and to be able to offer the best service to the public and the best service to the property owners. Um, gain that confidence that you're you're doing it the right way. I can tell you that a lot of um, property owners have told me that they're so glad that their property manager uses my service because um, it really just not only just gives them the assurance that any problems that may arise are handled properly, but properly, but also that the process and the procedures that are in place are done properly on the front end of things because it avoids all those. Uh, most of those problems on the back end. Just a little tip and lesson for you on that. We are out of time on this episode. Boy, the time flew by today on episode two. And it's been fun, as always, talking about what is going on in the world with evictions and landlord-tenant law and all these sorts of things. We're going to get more into it on the next episode. Episode three is to come. Subscribe to the podcast using your favorite choice, uh, whether it's Amazon, Spotify, Apple. Um, It should be up and running on all those, um, although we're still 
It's a new podcast, so we're still getting the uh, approval, the RSS feed approval from some of the others. Um, it will be on Google, I think, really soon. So use your choice of podcast listening to catch us next time on episode three with the Property Management Law Solutions podcast.